Father, we come before you. We stand in your presence, your holy presence, Lord. And we would be lost without you. I would be so lost without you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care and your protection. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord God. Praise the Lord Jesus. Amen. morning for those of you who don't know my name is Wayne Thiessen um, I serve the church as an elder and um, oh father God I pray this morning that I would say only what you once said there is so much, Lord, I can say, but just what you once said. Just what you once said. Just what you once said. Pastor Megan was mentioning on the, that one last song, not the last song, the one before, that God was healing anxiety in someone. Um... Oh, I don't know where to start. It is, it is a very, is it a, is it a, it is a very real issue. Um, it's an emotional issue, but it's one that is, affects so many people, so many people. And um, God's plan is not for you to have anxiety. That's not what God wants. It's, emo it's an emotional issue. Um, a year ago, I would have probably stood before you and said, you know, we just need to trust the word of God, trust God, and just carry on. But then, um, last November, God started taking me through a process. Um, <laughs> um, God showed me that I had a lot of unknown, undealt with, personal, emotional issues myself that I had never, I didn't recognize them because I didn't know about them. Um, So it started all, it started almost a year ago, not quite, this journey of mine. And I have been on this journey. And God has kind of spiritually and emotionally cocooned me for the last nine months. And he's taken me on a journey um, into my past. Um, there's going to be a lot of ums here because... It's, it's, it's a journey that I never, ever, ever, ever thought I needed. And as it turned out, I was more screwed up than anybody I know. Um, so, it started last November, and we started working through some personal issues. Pastor Megan and I did. And then... Um, Dave McGrew came on board as well. And, and you know what, I, I don't think I would be standing here right now if it wasn't for God, first of all. If it wasn't for Pastor Megan, Dave McGrew, and my wife Marge. Because they all walked through this with me. And I think maybe... Um, it hurt them as much as it did me to watch me go through it. But in February, it was February the 17th, Pastor Megan was, was preaching, and she gave a word. And I've got the word. I typed it out. The word was, 
I hear the Father say there is somebody now. The Father is speaking to you right now. He's saying, you're going to need to go on a journey. This is going to be a journey, one that you have not wanted to face, one that you didn't want to look at, and so you stayed stuck, and you wouldn't walk down that road. And the Father says, it's time to go on the journey. It's time for the journey. It's time for the journey now. And this is what he says, I am strengthening you. There's strength in the journey, strength in the journey. You need to walk along the road because your strength is in this journey. And when you begin to walk, when you begin to start going down the road, the strength is in the journey. You're going to need to go on this journey because you will not, but you will not go alone. You will not go alone. I will be with you and the strength is in the journey. It's time to go on the journey. That was God speaking directly to me. I don't know if that word meant anything to anyone else in the room. But God said to me, you need to go on this journey. You know, I got home and I flopped open my Bible because I'm thinking about this. <laughs> God, it's so cool. In Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, it says, I will advise you along the way and lead you forth with my eyes as your guide. So don't make it difficult. Don't be stubborn when I take you where you've not been before. Don't make me tug and pull you along. Just come with me. The journey began, like I said, in November. But when God gave me this word, then the five of us, which is me and Pastor and Marge and Dave and God, and we kind of dove into the fire swamp. Um, and it was somewhere I never expected to go because it took me into my past, which I had no recollection of. I didn't remember most of my childhood. And I remember Marge and I talking a lot of times, thinking it's kind of odd that I wouldn't remember it. Well, when God started bringing back memories, then I knew why I had not remembered it. But I'm going to center just on one thing that God showed. God showed me so much stuff I started journaling when it started in November, and I've hit like 48 pages. So like there is that, that's typed on a computer. So God has done so much for me. What God did is he took me apart, layer by layer by layer. He told me, after Megan gave this word, he told me, he said, when you rebuild a classic old car, the best way to do it is to take everything down to the frame and sandblast the rust off of it and then put it back together with new parts. And that's exactly what God did. There, there was severe trauma in my past, which I did not remember and did not know about. And there were so many things that needed healing from that trauma. And I could tell you about them all, and it would take me an hour and a half, but I want to just center on one. But you know what? I am standing here only because of the grace of God. And when I say grace, I mean, that's a, a term, Christianese, we use it all the time, and it kind of flippantly off. And those of you who've been here for a while, we have a definition, which is God's unmerited favor and his ability and desire to use his power on your behalf, even though you don't deserve it. But I want to dummy that down. You know what? It's just God's favor. Plain and simple. Because if God favors us, he's going to use his power on our behalf. We don't have to say that. And I don't think there's anybody here that doesn't know that we don't deserve it. It's pretty obvious. You know, so when I say I'm, I stand here only because of the grace of God, I'm meaning I stand here because, only because of the favor of God on my life. I shared before the verse, and I should have looked it up. I don't remember. I didn't remember where it was. But we are God's favorites. Out of all creation, out of everything God made, we are His favorites. And when we say you're my favorite, it means out of everybody, you are the one I like the best. But God is so much bigger than that, because individually, every one of you is His favorites. Individually, every one of you is the one He likes the best. And our mind can't comprehend that. 
because it's odd and it doesn't make sense to us because it's not the meaning we put on favorite. But God is so much bigger than our minds. And he's so much bigger than what we can comprehend. And every one of you is his favorites. Every one of you is his favorite. Um, this is something that God had to pound into my head. Um, and which we'll kind of get to. <laughs> one of the things, one of the issues that I had was I was living in self-pity. And I didn't know it. I had no idea. So over the course of this, at a certain point in time, I'm dealing with some memories that God has brought back of my past that I did not remember that I had completely buried. You know, I was thinking, you know, a year ago, the thing I was the most proud about in my life was that I didn't get excited about nothing and I didn't get depressed about nothing. Just flatlined. And this, yesterday I thought, God, you know, on an ECG, when there's a flat line, not a good thing, folks. Not a good thing. And so, but I was, and I was proud of this, you know, and I did not realize that it was not a good thing that I was emotionally flatlined. I didn't have emotions. I didn't get excited, and I didn't get depressed. I was just the same all the time. Not a good thing. And, and I think, and, and, and I, I have been taught for so many years just to stand on the word, ignore your emotions, stand on the word, and go with the word. Which is good advice, but not for someone who has no emotions, because then it justifies throwing them all out. And, and you know what? God gave us emotions. They're there for a reason. He didn't give us emotions just to pester us. It's not a thorn in our side. God gave us emotions, and I have found this out over the last eight months. <laughs> um, we were talking this morning about the movie Adam was talking about about how it made everybody cry and I'm thinking you know I never go to movies that make me cry don't like that but you know what and now I like cry all the time you're going to probably see it before this service is done um, like all the time like <laughs> I had, I had sealed off my heart so much from all the trauma, not just in my childhood, but for the last 59 years. And then when God opened it up, everything came out at once. I was a wreck. I tell you, there were days I couldn't go to work. It was... It was God. You know, it was God. But I want to talk about self-pity a little bit. Dictionary.com says that self-pity is pity for oneself, especially a self-indulgent attitude concerning one's own difficulties, hardships, etc. There's a website called gotquestions.org. It says, when we decide that life has not treated us as we have the right to be treated, self-pity is the result. Self-pity causes us to sulk and obsess over our hurts, real or perceived. At the heart of self-pity, is a disagreement with God over how life and he has treated us. Self-pity. And we all feel it sometimes, you know. And, and I had at times felt it and recognized it and said, well, that's not God. And I buried it under the rug. Instead of dealing with it, I buried it. And you know, if you sweep your kitchen and you take all the dirt and put it under the rug, every time you sweep the kitchen, Eventually, bugs are going to come crawling out from under the rug. And I did that. I swept everything under the rug. Any emotional, it just got buried. And so when God opened up my heart, everything came out at once. The key, the key, to, the key word in self-pity here is the word self. When self is dominant, God is not. This is what C.S. Lewis said. The moment you have self at all, there's a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God. In fact, that was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin that he taught the human race. To be dragged, and this isn't C.S. Lewis, but to be dragged down by self-pity is to fall for the lie that God cannot and will not take care of us, and that we have to deal with our own needs, because God's not going to do it. 
And that's a lie, you know. And God started to show me where in my life, like when, when he told me, I'm sitting, I remember sitting in the living room on my couch. <laughs> that, and it was a Sunday. No, it was a Monday. That Sunday morning, um, I'm sitting in, in, in one of the rows and God, um, no, not, and I don't remember what Megan preached, but I know that Adam got up after the service and he read a verse in Psalms that basically said, if there's anything in my heart that is not of you, God, dig it up. Well, um, I had been about four weeks into dealing with issues from my past that I never remembered, that I did not want to deal with. But the thing is, when you go on a journey like this with God, you can't turn back. Like, what are you going to do? You can't go back. It would be like a, 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 sur a surgeon operating on somebody, doing open-heart surgery, and in the middle of it going, eh, I'm out of here, bye, walking out, and leaving the guy on, the, on, a, on a surgery table cut wide open. Because I was. I was cut wide open, and I was there. And God cocooned me. So when I say that, I mean, I was cut wide open. And I was extremely vulnerable to anything. And when I say God cocooned me, he gave me three people to talk to, which was Dave and Megan and Marge. And he protected me from the enemy who could have dove in and done damage, like incredible damage. Because things that I thought were true were turning out not to be. Things that I thought were not true were turning out to be true. And I had no idea what was going on at all. And I'm dealing with this as Adam says, dig into my heart. And I'm thinking, Adam, do you have any idea what you're asking people to do? Because I started this four to six weeks ago, and I am not having a good time. <laughs> and if you didn't recognize that, that's self-pity. I was sitting there feeling, so, and not even recognize it feeling extremely sorry for myself because nothing from my past was as I thought it was. It was all different. It was all different. And I don't know if you know what that's like, not to remember anything and suddenly have your past brought back and find out that it is not what you thought it was. I was sitting there and I was in self-pity. And that evening, and that night, and the next day. I get off work and I go home and I'm sitting on the couch. I sent Dave McGrew a text and his response was, well, that is just dripping with self-pity. <laughs> and I, had no, I went, oh, gee, he's right. It is. And I sat down there, and I read that text, and God said to me, he said, you have been living with self-pity since you were a child. And I had no idea. And God just brought two instant stories from the Old Testament about self-pity. Dave gave me another one, another two. And I want to bring the four of them to you this morning. On Wednesday, Max was here, and he talked about the question, why? If you didn't catch it, that's also self-pity. Now, if you're asking why because you really want an answer, and, and like I have spent the last nine months saying, okay, God, why did I just react that way? What is in me that I need to fix now because I reacted that way? which is fine, because you're looking. But when you go, why do I have to go through this when no one else has to? You know, that's, then you're looking at self-pity. So when Max on Wednesday night was talking about why, that's what he was talking about. And I wanted to kind of delve into that question about why. I thought it was interesting because it was on Wednesday morning. It was on Tuesday night, Megan asked, and it was Wednesday morning, God showed me that he wanted me to talk about self-pity. And Wednesday night, Max is here going, why? We don't ask why. <laughs> and, and, and it was just conf confirmation for me. So I'm sitting in my living room and God is showing me all the areas I've got self-pity. Every time I walked into the house and I put something on the step and it fell off and rolled down three steps and I went, sure enough, it's got to fall. That's self-pity. Every time I went, why does this have to happen on a Friday when I'm going to go home in an hour? self-pity. And I did that all the time. And I would do it to God. I'd say, God, why does this always have to happen? And God never answered me, obviously. <laughs> well, he, well, he did, but not the way I suspected it. 
And I realized my whole life I had been doing this. Since I was a child, because of the trauma that I had experienced and not remembered, I had self-pity in my life and didn't know it because I didn't remember when it started. And I had already always, always lived with it. I did not know it was not normal. It had always been with me. So God's starting to show me all these different areas where I felt sorry for myself in the past. So the first thing he reminded me was of Elijah. So I'm going to read a whole chapter, but before we go there, let me give you the background to the story. Elijah was a prophet. He was what they call a minor prophet. There are 12 of those. And there are four major prophets. And really, the only difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is the major prophets were literate. They knew how to read. They knew how to write. Usually, they were royalty. Isaiah was royalty for sure. The minor prophets had scribes to write down what they said. Really, that's the only difference between a major and a minor prophet. But Elijah was a minor prophet. But that does not mean he was a minor prophet. <laughs> you know, he did some amazing things. So, there's no rain. So, Elijah goes and he tells King Ahab, there's not going to be any rain. Largely because Ahab had a bout of self-pity because he couldn't get a vineyard. He's a king. He owns pretty much everything, but he wants this guy's vineyard. And so he complains to his wife Jezebel. Jezebel has Naboth killed and gets his vineyard for her husband to shut him up because he's complaining about self-pity. God's obviously not happy with this. No rain no rain in Israel. And Elijah, of course, was the one that told Ahab there's not going to be any rain. Three years, Elijah is gone. Three years, there is not a drop of rain. Uh, Ahab has everybody in the country looking for Elijah because he knows Elijah is the only one that can turn the tap back on. And everybody in the country is looking for him. And then Elijah just appears. One day God says to him, time to, time to go back. And he appears to him, and Obadiah falls at his feet. And this is interesting. Obadiah was a prophet of God. He was the one in charge of the temple in Israel. He falls at Elijah's feet. And he basically pleads with Elijah not to make him go tell Ahab that Elijah is there, because he'll just die. Ahab will just kill him. Elijah says, nope, you've got to go tell him, and I'm going to stand right here until Ahab gets here. And he did. So Ahab gets there. And then, of course, Elijah talks to him about his Baal worship. Baal was a, well, it, plain and simple, it was demonic. They sacrificed kids. You know, they, it was just bad. God wasn't happy with it. And so Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. You get all your prophets of Baal together tomorrow, and I will come to represent God, and your 400 prophets of Baal can come and represent Baal, and then we're going to see who's the real God. And we're going to make an altar, and whichever God shoots fire down from heaven is the real God. I need my Bible. So, um, that's what they do. And in the morning, Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, you go first. You go first. This is all in 1 Kings uh, 18, by the way, just in case you want to go read this later. Um, I'm just going to go there. If I can find 1 Kings, it was there yesterday. There it is. 1 Kings chapter 18. So they do the thing. They, they're dancing around. They whip themselves into a frenzy. They cut themselves. They... Bleeding all over the place. There's 400 of these guys dancing around their altar trying to get fire to come down from heaven. And they do this all morning. <laughs> and then at lunchtime, by noon, Elijah started making fun of them and mocking them. Yell a little louder, he says. If he's a god, he should hear you. Oh, maybe he's off meditating somewhere. Oh, maybe he went on vacation. Do you suppose he overslept? Maybe he woke, maybe he fell asleep and you guys need to wake him up. Yell louder. He's just mocking them in the living Bible. Remember that one? It says, maybe he went to the toilet. <laughs> he is mocking them. And then, and then Elijah says, enough. That's enough. 
my turn. And so they all quit. I, they, I assume they would have been exhausted by now anyway. So then they move. Elijah has people come forward, and he said, take, oh, how many jugs of water was it? Anyway, take a bunch of water, pour it on top of the altar. He made an altar. He put the wood on it. He sacrificed an animal on it, covered it in water, dug a trench around it. Three times he made them do that so that the trench was absolutely, there was a moat around the altar. Nobody could get to the altar without walking through the water. And then God prayed. I mean, then Elijah prayed. And then God, of course, shot the fire out of heaven. And it took the animal. It took the wood. It took the water. Nothing left but scorched rock. And of course, then all the people of Israel realize who God is, right? So they all are bowing down excuse me, to Elijah. And Elijah tells them to get up, get the 400 prophets of Baal, take them down to the river, and kill them all. And that's what they did. Slaughtered all 400 of them. So now, 1 Kings 19, this, this comes right after that. So you can put it up there, Steve. When Elijah saw how things were, well, go to verse 1, please. Sorry. Can you do that? Or is it, I'll just read it if it messes you up. Verse 1, Abraham reported to Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll, even, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you will be as dead as all of my prophets. So then, oh, there you go, verse 3. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah, where he left his young servant. And in the end, and then went to the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush, collapsed in its shade, wanting the worst way to be done with it all, just to die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I am ready to join my ancestors in the grave. You recognize pity there? <laughs> Exhausted, he fell asleep under the broom bush. And then an angel shook him up, shook him up, shook him awake, and said, get up and eat. So he looked around, to his surprise, right by his head, was a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water, and he ate the meal and went back to sleep. The angel of God came back again and shook him awake and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate, drank his fill, and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. So Elijah is feeling sorry for himself. He wants to die because Jezebel said that he's going to kill him. He had just killed 400 of her prophets, and he's afraid of her. You ever wonder why? How could somebody who had the faith to do that one day run from the next? Because he was feeling sorry for himself, that's why. And um, twice, God showed him that he is, he is Elijah's provider. Don't have to worry about Jezebel. Here's some food. Twice, God showed him Twice, Elijah didn't see it. So when he got, he went like 40 days and 40 nights, somewhere we missed that verse, but when he got there, he crawled into a cave and he went to sleep and the word of God came to him. Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been working my heart out. But in the world, they say something completely different. But anyway, I've been, <laughs> I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, murdered your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Remember that he, when he first went back to Ahab, Obadiah was there, who was in charge of the temple and all the temple people, and they were not worshiping Baal, but he forgot that. God said, go stand on the mountain at attention before God. God will pass by. A hurricane, so... so Elijah goes, a hurricane rips through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. That's quite a wind. It's breaking rocks. It's a hurricane. Hurricanes usually don't go in mountains, but this is pretty awesome. God wasn't to be found in the wind. So Elijah is watching this mighty wind. God didn't talk to him in the mighty wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. And everything shook, and he's in the cave, have you ever been in a cave during an earthquake? I was thinking, if I was in a cave during an earthquake, I would get out of the cave. Really, I would not stay there. But he stayed there. And he went to listen for God in the earthquake. 
God didn't say anything in the earthquake. God wasn't, and there was a fire, forest fire. Well, I could say staying in the, I could see staying in the cave there because you'd get burned otherwise. God wasn't in the fire, and after the fire, a gentle, quiet whisper. And when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak and went stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said, So, Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? So uh, God goes to Elijah and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I worked my tail off for you, and all I get out of it is that somebody wants to kill me, and I have to run for my life. So God takes him to this cave, and he brings the wind, and he brings the fire, and he brings an earthquake, and he's showing Elijah that he controls this whole thing. He controls the world. He controls what goes on. It's not happening without him knowing about it, but Elijah doesn't see that. And I don't blame Elijah. I was there and never saw any of it either. So God, and so he says the same thing to God again the second time. And here's, here's the interesting thing. God says, go back the way you came through the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, make him king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, make him king over Israel. And finally, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. So, Elijah takes off, God wakes him up, supplies lunch for him, or food, his needs. He goes to sleep, God wakes him up again, gives him some more food, supplies his needs. Then he gets up and he goes into the mountains, and God brings the wind, brings the rain, shows him how majestic that God is everything, and Elijah still won't give up his self-pity. And finally, what does God do? He said, okay then, you're being replaced. If you won't give up the self-pity, Elisha's taken over. God could not use Elijah if he wouldn't give up the self-pity. It, it just wouldn't happen. And then God took me to Jonah. And I remember Jonah. Everybody knows, well, maybe everybody doesn't know the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to Israel as well. The prophet. The guy, right? The top dog. And he would give words to the Israelites that God would give him. So God gave him a word one day for Nineveh. Jonah was a racist, plain and simple. If you weren't an Israelite, you just were not any good. And Nineveh was not part of Jerusalem. And he knew, he knew God. He had been a prophet of God for very long. And he knew that if he went to Nineveh, there's a good chance they would repent. And if they repented, there's a good chance God would spare them. And he really wanted them burned up. So what Jonah did is he headed in the other direction. <laughs> Bought a ticket to Tarshish on the first ship heading out. I thought it was interesting that I think that's where Paul was from. But anyway, um, so they get out into, and along comes another big wind. Just like Max talked about on Wednesday. Just like the one in the mountains. And so these experienced sailors were scared. And they knew, I don't know how, but they knew that it was not a normal wind, that God was upset. And they didn't know who, though. So they get everybody up. Uh, Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. So they wake him up, bring him up, and they, everybody draws straws. What that is is there's one short straw and a bunch of long ones, and whoever gets the short straw, that's the bad guy. Jonah got the short straw. And they said, what did you do that would cause God to put this on it? And so Jonah told them, he said, God wants to save the Ninevites, and I have no interest in that. So here I am, and the storm is my fault. <laughs> and they said, well, how do we get rid of the storm? And Jonah says, toss me overboard. That's the only way you're going to get rid of it. God's just not happy. He knew God. Well, they didn't want to do that because, you know, they are nice people. After all, they don't want to kill the prophet of God because they're a little bit concerned that maybe Jonah was wrong and God might get mad at them if he killed his prophet. So they didn't want to do that, and they threw everything else overboard first. And nothing worked. They're not going anywhere. So finally, in desperation, they pray to God and say, God, please don't hold this against us. But we gotta. We just gotta. And so they toss them overboard, and poof, no storm, gone. Jonah starts going down, and he gets swallowed by a big fish. 
<laughs> the fish goes to the shores of Nineveh and pukes him out. <laughs> so there's Elijah, probably bleached white because of the gases in the whale's stomach. He's got probably seaweed stuck in his hair. He's not, this, not, a, not the prophet of God with the manicure. <laughs> and I have to admit, when I think of Jonah, I think of the way VeggieTales had him. You know, with the monocle. <laughs> you know, the... Well, not anymore. Not anymore. He's laying on the beach and he's bleached white. and his, He's got seaweed in his teeth and in his hair. And God sends off to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh has 120,000 people in it. It's three days to walk from one end to the other. He walks one day in, gets on a soapbox, and starts preaching. And sure enough, everybody starts repenting. Everybody starts repenting. And God spares them. And Jonah is mad. Because he, go, he goes up and sits on a hill above Nineveh, and he's going to watch to see if God is actually going to kill them or whether he's going to save them. And he knows in his heart God's not going to kill them, not if they repented. So, Jonah chapter 4, that was, <laughs> this, that was the story coming up to this. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. He yelled at God. God, I knew you would do this. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. This is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, ready to drop of a hat and turn on your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. This, he's mad at God because of this. <laughs> you know, really? Really? Okay, anyway. So God, if you won't kill them, then kill me because I'm better off dead. I'm better off dead than living in a world of Ninevites. God said, what do you have to be angry about? This is God's response. Jonah just left. He went out of the city. He sat down to sulk, put together a makeshift shelter of leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen to the city. God arranged for a broadleaf tree to spring up. It grew over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of the angry sulk. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then, along came a worm. By dawn the next day, the worm had eaten into the shade tree and it withered away. And Jonah got mad. The sun came up and God sent a hot, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint and he prayed to die. I am better off dead. And then God said to Jonah, what right do you have to get angry about the shade tree? Jonah said, plenty of right. It's made me angry enough to die. <laughs> God says, what's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get, and you neither planted nor watered it? It grew up one night and died the next. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't know right from wrong to say nothing of all the innocent animals. So we have Elijah who was sulking in self-pity and God replaced him. So that's it. Had four chances. I'm finding someone else. You have Jonah who had a couple of chances and was just mad at God because God is merciful and loving. And, and God says, you have no right. You have no right to be angry. Let's check out a third guy, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wrote a book called Lamentations. And if, if you're struggling with depression, I would not suggest reading that book. <laughs> Put it up, Steve. So uh, it's because they say Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he felt sorry for himself all the time. All the time. He's crying about something. So this is Jeremiah. Unlucky mother that you had me as a son, given the unhappy job of indicting the whole country. I've never heard or harmed a soul, yet everybody is out to get me. But God knows I've done everything I could to help them. I prayed for them against their enemies. I've always been on their side, trying to stave off disaster. God knows how hard I've tried. O Israel, O Judah, what are your chances against the iron juggernaut from the north? In punishment for your sins, I'm giving away everything you've got, giving it away for nothing. I'll make you slaves to your enemies in a strange and far-off land. My anger is blazing and fierce, burning and hot judgment against you. Is that it? That's not what I wanted. I thought it was still coming. Just a minute. Um, 
Jeremiah. Okay, verse 15, I'll read it to you. You know where I am, God. Remember what I'm doing here. Take my side against my detractors. Don't stand back while they ruin me. Just look at the abuse I'm taking. When your words showed up, I ate them. I swallowed them whole. What a feast. What delight I took in being yours. Oh God, God of the angel armies, I never joined the party crowd in their laughter and in their fun. Led by you, I went off by myself. You filled me with indignation. Their sin had me seething. But why, why this chronic pain, this ever-worsening wound with no healing in sight? You're nothing God but a mirage, a lovely oasis in the distance, and then nothing. That's what Jeremiah said to God. So this is what God's response is. Do you have verse 21 there? Or verse 19? There it is. This is how God answered me. Take back those words, and I'll take you back. Then you'll stand tall before me, Use words truly and well. Don't stoop to cheap whining. Then, but only then, you will speak for me and let your words change them. Don't change your words to suit them. And lastly, verse 20. I'll turn you into a steel wall, a thick steel wall, impregnable. They'll attack you but won't put a dent in you because I'm at your side defending and delivering. God's decree. So Jeremiah complained. Jeremiah believed the lie that God didn't care. And God said, take those words back and maybe I'll still use you. So Elijah gets replaced. Um, Jonah, he says, you have no right to be angry. Jeremiah, God says, take those words back and maybe I can still use you. You get the idea that God doesn't like self-pity? One more. Let's go to... What time is it? Oh my goodness. Um... Okay, let's, we'll quickly go through this. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 21 to 26. From then on, Jesus began to clearly reveal to his disciples that he was destined to go to Jerusalem and suffer injustice from the elders, leading priests and religious scholars. He also explained that he would be killed, and three days later he'd be raised back to life again. And Peter took him aside and corrected him privately. Can you imagine that? Here's Jesus talking, and Peter takes him aside and goes, Nah, you're wrong, Jesus. You got it. No, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. And he reprimanded Jesus over and over, saying to him, God forbid, Master, spare yourself. You must never let this happen to you. It is interesting that in the King James, it says, This shall never be. The word shall, it means will be, come to pass, or what would follow. So Peter is saying, what will follow if you die? What's going to happen to us if you die? It is not fair that you have to die and leave us all by ourselves. So here's Peter feeling sorry for himself. And I suspect that Jesus was fighting the same thing because Jesus snapped at him. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because your thoughts are only filled with man's viewpoints and not with the ways of God. Peter was feeling sorry for himself, and Jesus basically called it satanic. It's a satanic attitude. It's a satanic attitude. And so why does God dislike self-pity so much? God dislikes self-pity. This is what he showed me. Self-pity asks the question, why, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to go through this? And that's the same thing I was asking God going back into my childhood. I'm saying, God, why do I have to go through this? God hates self-pity because self-pity questions why and then rejection answers it with lies about God. So self-pity says, why do I have to go through this? And right after self-pity says it, rejection is right behind him saying, because God doesn't like you. Because God hates you. Steve, you can throw that picture up. Because God... Really, it doesn't love you as much as he says he does. It's exactly what he told Eve in the Garden of Eden. So self-pity is a belief that God's not looking after you. But self-pity asks God why, and rejection is right there to answer it. See this awesome picture? This is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is something God showed me. It goes on forever. 
For those of you who don't know, um, the Bible talks about um, when, when everything is done on this earth, the bride, which is the church, is going to have a marriage supper with the groom, which is Jesus. And this is a painting of the marriage supper of the Lamb with all of the church and Jesus. All my life I had been asking God why. I've been questioning why does this always have to happen? Why does this always have to happen? Rejection came right along and told me the same lie. Now it was in, buried in my emotions and in my heart. So in my head, I didn't, I had no idea that rejection was even there. That it was even, that I didn't believe what my head thought. My head believed one thing. In my heart, I was something completely different. So this is what rejection told me. Rejection says, do you remember the parable Jesus said about when you go to a wedding feast and Jesus says, don't sit at the place of honor because if you do and you're not supposed to be there, you're going to be embarrassed being brought back. Sit at the back and if you're to be at the honor, bring forward. So rejection came to me and said, your spot is right here at the end. Jesus is way down there where you can't see him with the people he really wants. With the Billy Graham, with Peter and James and John. But your spot is down here, right at the very end, where Jesus is not. And inside of me, in my heart, I believed that. Not in my head, because I knew what the Bible said. I'd been saved for 40 years, and I knew what the Bible said. I've read it through many, many, many times. And I knew what the Bible said, but in my heart, as a child, this is what I believed. And this is part of the reason God had to take me apart layer by layer by layer, because he had to get rid of this stuff. He had to get, it was my identity, my, it was who I was. And it was like, it was like there was a, you know, you go to auction sale and you buy a whole box of junk to get the one thing. And so rejection told me I was part of the junk. The one thing God really wanted was not me. And self-pity opens the door for rejection to come and lie to you that way. And if you are, Feeling sorry for yourself enough, you're going to believe it. It's just going to, you're, you're just going to accept it, and you're, you're going to believe it. So Jesus had to take me down to the frame and sandblast the rejection and the self-pity and the fear and the shame. He had to blast it out of me. And you know, when God first started taking me back into my past, God speaks to me, he gives me pictures not always, but he'll show me a picture. And he had showed me a picture of a nine-year-old boy cowering in the corner trying to make sense of his life. And that was me. And then, about three weeks ago, God showed me the same picture, except Jesus was beside me with his arms around me. He was not a grown-up Jesus. I wasn't sitting on his lap. He was the same size I was as a nine-year-old boy he had his arms around me. And he showed me that through 40 years, 59 years of rejection and self-pity, Jesus was beside me the whole time. Every minute he was there. And, and what made that possible was Jesus dying on the cross. Because a holy God and sinful man just one will be destroyed, and you know it's not God. That's why in the temple they had the veil, and God stayed on this side, the men were on that side. And I'll try and get through this really quickly. Jesus died so he could sit beside you and put his arm around you when you're going through a hard time. You know, when, 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 you're, when you're sitting in the bar and you're drinking yourself silly just to numb the pain and the torment inside, Jesus is right beside you. He's not plugging his nose. He's, he's not condemning you. He's not saying you stink and you need to be saved. He has got his arm around you and he's holding you. When you're in a back alley putting a needle in your vein, Jesus is right beside you with his arms around you. And Megan has been preaching about the love of the Father. This is the love of the Father. That he would send his son to shed his blood so that he could sit beside you when you're going through a hard time and put his arms around you and just help you get through it. He is amazing. 
and his love is amazing. And I don't know how to end it. That's pretty much... <laughs> um, You know, if there's anybody here who wants to meet this Jesus, who will put his arms around you. And, and, and the interesting thing is, I was nine years old, and Jesus was beside me. I got saved when I was 18. Think about that. I wasn't saved, and Jesus had his arms around me because he knew that he had died for me. I just didn't know it. You know, when rejection told me that God didn't care, and most of you heard this part of my story, that I had depression, I, I gave my life to God, God lifted the depression, I went to bed, I woke up depressed again, and rejection said, see, God doesn't even want you. And I got in my car, and I went, and I did, I, I had thought, and then rejection said, if God doesn't love you, you might as well just kill yourself, because if God doesn't love you, nobody does. And so I believed it, and I got in the car, and I went to do just that. I had a race car. The thing would easily do well over 120 miles an hour. Did it all the time. Because the only time I felt good was when I was running. But I got out to do that, and I got to throw that car, drive it off of a ravine, and the steering locked, and I couldn't get it off the road. So I stopped. Steering works fine. I tried it again the second time. The steering locked. Couldn't get it off the road. And I went home extremely frustrated, not having any idea what God just did. But Jesus was with me the whole time. He was with me before I gave my life to him. So if there's anybody here who really wants to meet Jesus and you don't know him, just come and see me after we close the service. I'll get Adam to close it right away. Just come and see me after. I would love to introduce you to Jesus because the love of the Father is so incredible. I can feel him living inside of me and that is such an amazing feeling. And I'm so sorry I took so long. But... Anybody online, if you're watching, if you want to meet this Jesus, there's contact information there, isn't there, Steve? Yeah? Yeah, just contact us. Give us a call. Um, our God is so incredible. So incredibly incredible. I cannot put words to it at how good it is and how much he loves us. Adam.